welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte, here with John Kiriakou. We got a couple hours of going against the grain for you, and it has been a week where it's like a bunch of sort of quiet, long-running stories yeah. happen, and then all of a sudden, it it's like head. half of the days are a burst of news, Yes, and the other half is... You know, still waiting to see what happens with this thing that we're waiting for. Today you're, you're is a right. burst of news day is what I'm yeah, trying to it, say. And it's one of those situations, one of those sort of midweek, you know, kind of days where there are these issues that I really haven't paid very much attention to mm. until they've come to this head. Yeah. Which is what we're looking at today. Yeah. So we are getting uh, into a a lot of stories today. We have more fallout from Twitter, the Twitter files and the way they've been released with the Strange revelation that somehow a Twitter lawyer, this is according to Matt um, Taibbi, uh, a Twitter lawyer got between him and the documents that were given to him. Uh, and so we are going to talk about who this lawyer was and what oh boy, it might need, mean that he was apparently uh, vetting this release of information without the knowledge of either Elon Musk or the reporters who were getting the data. You know, having worked at a at a major firm, mm-hmm. After my CIA career, I was at Deloitte and Touche for four years. Huge, huge firm, 40 plus thousand employees. Mm. This kind of thing just isn't supposed to happen Mm. in a big company. And it looks like it actually happened Mm. where you have a general counsel who is supposed to be joined at the hip with the CEO. Nothing gets done without the general counsel and the CEO agreeing on it. Here in this case, we're learning today that James Baker, the general counsel of Twitter, and and the former general counsel of uh, of uh, the Comey FBI was just acting independently of Elon Musk. Apparently, when Musk found out about this yesterday, that Baker was was uh, vetting the documents that were supposed to be going to Matt Taibbi, he was fired, and he was escorted out of the building. Yeah. So we'll see. Crazy. I mean, this is not. I will bet a lot of money this is not the end of the drama and twists and turns involved in this. So we will talk about that later. Uh, We are going to talk about the oral arguments underway today at the Supreme Court in a case that has the potential to overturn the way elections are managed across the country. Uh, And our producer, Ben, has spent the morning at a, a pretty large rally in front of the Supreme Court calling on justices to dismiss the idea that state legislatures should have the final word on things like gerrymandering, vote certification, and other election processes. That the legislatures should have the final say and not state courts. Um, So there's a lot to get into with this case, and we are going to talk about that later on the show. We are going to talk about the Trump Organization, found guilty on all counts of tax fraud yesterday. 17 felonies, Yep, just like that. Yep. We'll talk about the result in the Georgia Senate runoff. We are going to talk about the... The Biden administration, and this is, I think, the key point here, getting its express wish in protecting Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman from prosecution in the United States. So the judge that wrote that decision said, you know, the input from the executive was basically what what has caused him to issue that decision instead of, uh, you know, considering it further. And it's interesting and disappointing to me that the Biden administration has said nothing publicly. You know, this was this is the same administration, the same president uh, who who called Mohammed bin Salman a murderer Mm -hmm. and said that there was no place in civilized society for him. And now that same president and same administration is asking the courts to to dismiss any any complaint against Mohammed bin Salman for for murdering and dismembering a Washington Post journalist. Because as executive, he should be immune. Exactly. Yeah, that's what he said. 
Um, and speaking of Saudi Arabia, we are going to preview a topic we'll get into more tomorrow, but that's the state visit of Chinese President Xi Jinping to Saudi Arabia and a, a bunch of different Chinese Arab summits that are underway. Um, also on the topic of strange convictions and prosecutions, we will talk about the conviction and sentencing of, of serving Argentine Vice President Christina Kirchner. Also Very on confusing. fraud charges. I really don't understand how this was able to uh, go through. And I am hoping our guest will tell us. Unlikely that she's going to spend any time in jail for a variety of reasons. Sure. Uh, but we'll talk about, you know, what was actually motivating uh, this prosecution, what it means, what the fallout's going to be. Um, yeah, there's there's yes. a lot to get into there. Yes, yeah, indeed. So we, got a, we got a bunch of stuff to uh, get to in the next couple of hours. But I had some things that, Caught my eye today also. Just a smorgasbord, really. Um, one was, you know, we talked, we talked a lot yesterday about TV Rain. Yes. Right? Uh, this Russian news channel that yes. is either, according to some people, is a really great independent news channel, and according to other people, is a sort of European-owned propaganda network. Either way, they are in the doghouse in Latvia. And uh, The Economist had something to say about that this morning. And so I have said on the yeah. show before, like I get up in the morning and part of getting ready for work is I, you know, listen to a couple of different news podcasts and The Economist sort of daily wrap up um, is is one of them. And it's just news. It's The Economist saying like, here's what's happening here. Here's some data about this, you know, whatever they think the big stories are. Um the Economist did something that I have not ever heard them do before. And maybe they do this and I've just never caught it or they do it very rarely, but it's not unheard of. But they talked about Latvia pulling the TV license of, of TV rain uh, after the strikes that we talked about yesterday. Uh, and amid apparently uh, complaining from local politicians that the channel had stuck its nose into local politics when it's just supposed to be about Russia. So the Economist tells us what happened and then says, but those grumbles are misplaced. Countries should welcome offshore media outlets that pump real news back into Russia and then just went straight back into the news. It was like, I mean, sure, I'm not surprised that's The Economist position. And of course, uh, magazines like The Economist and newspapers have editorial boards and yeah, they present right. opinion pieces and they present editorial pieces. But I have not ever heard them jump into the middle of their morning podcast to say, uh, you know, shame on you, Latvia. No. I thought that was pretty funny. Very I, don't know. I just thought that was odd. I also, man, this is just, a, this is just totally personal, but on the topic of my morning podcast, <laughs> uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, in its morning podcast ran an ad about, it was for like retirement savings uh -huh. and a retirement savings fund that you should use. But it included the, the line, um, you know, call us when you're ready to whatever, talk about your when you're retired and ready to talk about your financial planning and ready to finally start living. <laughs> and it's like, man, but this is true. This is what we do in the United States. Yeah. You put off everything until retirement because you can't afford it or really because you don't have the time because nobody gets any vacation time. In Europeans the United States. are amazed that we work as much as we work. It's such garbage. It's such a con. I mean, it's outrageous. Finally, it's just so sad that you go, oh, right. When I'm finally, finally ready to start living when I'm yeah. 60 years old. I mean, again, I, I hope to do really fun things after I'm 60. But I'm sure as hell I'm not going to wait 60 years. No, to, to finally start, start living. living like you owe five decades to somebody else. It's right. such a nasty 
piece of propaganda that's deeply lodged in our in our skulls. And it's so and like, again, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but, you know, I I uh, hiked the Pacific Crest Tip mm-hmm. Trail in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, you meet lots of non-Americans sure. on that trail. Be- Enjoying who, life. The Americans who are on that trail have either just graduated college. Yeah. And are taking a break. Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? Like, or they've just ooh, retired. Taking, taking four months before I join the workforce, yes. whatever. Or they've just retired. You get Europeans of all ages because they can take some time off. The first, and they're not worried about not having health insurance yeah, while they're right. hiking, right? They just, it is, it is so sad to me that Americans are forced to swallow this and this, the oh, theft I agree. of their lives. Anyway, I, I just, it's, it's I not. I agree. The first time I ever went to Greece, um, my uh, great uncle asked me one day, is it true that Americans work all day long? And he said, yeah. I said, yeah, of course. And he said, like, without stopping? And I said, sure. And he said, when do you sleep? I said, at night. And he said, but what if you're tired in the day? And I said, well, then you just have to push through it. Yeah. He just couldn't understand, like, why? I mean, he understands that that's what we do. Yeah. But he doesn't understand why would we want to do that? And he said, what if there's something you need to do? And I said, well, then you do it on weekends or you're just out of luck. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm sorry. I could never never live like that. In exchange for wages that have been stagnating since the 70s. No health care. You know what I mean? We don't even get we don't even get what we deserve for people. Come on. Oh, God, it makes me. And they may make a little bit less than we do. But boy, they have a better life than we do. Imagine the security, like, you know what I mean? Imagine the security of like not not having to fear Mm -hmm. that if you are without health insurance for a matter of weeks and in that time you break your leg, your family goes bankrupt. I mean, what an awful. Okay, we have other things to talk about. Uh, Sort of on the topic of of sick leave, by the way, I thought a useful report from the lever uh, about, you know, when the when Joe Biden signed his executive order forcing um, or, you know, signed the legislation forcing rail workers to accept the contract that uh, several unions had rejected. He, of course, said, like, but we really care. We really care about paid sick leave and we're going to do everything we can to, you know, make this happen. We're right. not, you know, we're doing whatever. Uh, the thing that they always do. Um, uh, the lever, I think, quite handily pointed out that uh, the administration could it has avenues that it could follow to make that happen, right? Mm-hmm. If it did want to put, if it did want to not, you know, not uh, give the unions the collective bargaining power to demand right. this on their own terms, but it does, in fact, want to bestow this upon them mm-hmm. from their seat of power. Uh, Biden could expand an executive order that requires federal sure. contractors to provide sick leave. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, transportation secretary, could uh, robustly enforce existing rail safety laws to challenge harmful attendance policies. Mm -hmm. Right. Having people on call all the time, jerking them around, messing with their schedules, making things perhaps understaffed and unsafe and against the law. Um, The administration could also use the last couple of weeks of Democrats control of Congress to push for the passage of a national paid sick leave bill. That has been uh, kicking around for 15 years. Yes. Are they going to do any of these things? I would not bet any of my hard earned money on it. But I think it's worth pointing out, you know, that they make these they make these promises. They say, look, I don't want you to have the power to get this thing by yourself, but I promise you I will gift it to you. Right. As long as you let me keep the power. And then those gifts don't don't seem to come a lot of the time. And it's worth it's worth remembering, you know, Democrats love to say their hands are tied. 
uh, I think it's worth remembering that they they could take these fights on. We're going to talk about this issue a little bit later in the show, too, mm-hmm. about um, actions that Congress is taking or failing to take and differences between the two parties on things that just seem to be basic rights. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, here's another story. We're, we're not going to get into it later, but it, it caught my eye and I think it's atrocious. Uh, NATO countries are considering using leftover funds from a pot of money previously used to back the Afghan security forces to instead provide support to Ukraine. Yep. So there's this fund known as the Afghan National Army Trust Fund, uh, and it was used to get equipment and training for Afghan troops. It is $3.4 billion. That's the size of the fund. A lot of money. Ukraine has said, well, what if you give that money to us? Because you you need a lot of money to continue uh, arming themselves, to continue uh, propping up their economy, et cetera. Um, And uh, yeah, of course, that's everybody's thinking. That is likely what is going to happen. Uh, The amount would uh, probably be used for non-lethal military aid and humanitarian and infrastructure projects. But it's just like, do you think maybe do you think maybe you should take that money that was going to be for the Afghan armed forces and instead give it to the Afghan people who last I checked were uh, not that far removed from fears of actual famine? Mm -hmm. We haven't checked in on the state of Afghanistan in a little while, but I don't think it's great. And I do feel like they could probably use that three three point four Without billion dollars. Doubt. Imagine, imagine the medical aid, for example, or even emergency food aid, infrastructure, infrastructure. of a country that you know have been blown up uh, for right. the past three decades. Really, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they could use some of that, uh, all of that non lethal and humanitarian aid. How much, by the way, did we? Did we decide we were going to put into so we froze like seven billion dollars of Afghan funds? Yes. And then we created this mechanism to redistribute half of it, I think. And the shame of that is that it's not our money. It's the Afghan, it's the Afghan government's yes, money. Their money. So, yeah, we could also just give them back their money in the amount in, in the same amount. Yes. But I just thought that was I thought that was pretty grim. Oh, I agree. Um, what else have we got? Oh, this is another, uh, I thought this was a funny update. We talked on the show. I remember about Hertz, the rental car Mm -hmm. company Hertz, um, having this weird pattern of, uh, accusing renters of its cars of auto theft. But for some people, this would lead to them actually being arrested arrested. and going to jail, Mm -hmm. mostly because of like weird glitches in its software program and in how cars were documented. And also just like assuming they were responsible for a theft that wasn't their problem. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hertz is going to have to settle. Uh, They are going to pay one hundred and sixty eight million dollars. Awful lot of money. Three hundred and sixty four people. It falsely accused of car theft. Um, so I was glad to, I was glad to see that. I thought that was pretty funny. Pretty impressive. Yeah. We've got more to get into, including some extremely wonky stuff about, uh, FTX yes. that I think I will try to mention and explain later in the show. Now but people I know. are calling him Sam Bankman fraud. Yes. That's, oh, that's good. <laughs> but you can do bank run fraud also. And right. That's pretty good one. <laughs> Uh, But we're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about, uh, hey, shipping insurance, that topic on everybody's lips today. Uh, Truly. It's a big deal. Uh, Oh, and also we forgot to mention, yeah, a couple dozen people in Germany arrested for apparently violently plotting to overthrow the government. We're going to ask what this investigation is about and who's who's in there. Because that would work. I mean, you know, we'll see. All of that and lots more coming up here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, here with John Kiriakou. We're going to get into uh, what exactly Russia is going to do to respond to the oil price cap that was imposed on its oil, seaborne oil exports mm-hmm. this week. Uh, and what, uh, surprise, surprise, Turkey is going to have to do with uh, how well that cap is able to be enforced by the countries that want to impose it. Uh, We are also going to talk about this out of the blue story about an apparent plot against the German government (laughs) and uh, what kind of wacky characters are behind it. I don't want to make too much light of it because certainly German authorities seem to think it's very serious. But it is interesting to me that among this collection of uh, does this sound familiar, John? Uh, Current and former members of the armed forces uh, are also people who uh, want a return to royal rule in Germany because of their extensive experience uh, in in living in a royal Germany. Well, I think there's some there's some idea that's taken hold that uh, Germany is not a legitimate state, but a corporation created after the end of World War II. Sounds like uh, uh, sovereign, the sovereign citizen movement has made its way across the Atlantic. We will see if our guest can clear any of this up for us. We're joined by political and foreign affairs analyst and independent journalist Chris Halali. Chris, thanks for being here again. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with this, uh, this Russian oil price cap. Still unclear how Russia is going to respond to this price cap that the G7, the EU and Australia have imposed. Uh, Russia has said it won't trade with countries that comply with the cap, but it's not clear what formal mechanisms will be drawn up to enforce that. It's not clear whether Russia's going to, you know, enforce that against direct shipments of oil or third party shipments. And so I wanted to ask, you know, what do you expect to see them to do? And, you know, it seems like there would be a variety of some of some responses would have uh, more limited repercussions. Some responses like just going, OK, well, we're not selling it anymore, uh, would seem to have broad reaching uh, consequences. So what do you think that we'll see? I think, number one, what we're going to see is um, uh, Russian um, government and um, the various um, oil industries um, focusing on ensuring their own tankers uh, domestically. So there's this uh, new uh, insurance ecosystem developing within the Russian Federation that will, um, you know, insure their own tankers and their own equipment without relying on international insurers, which um, account for about 90 percent of all shipping uh, and um, oil ships. So these tankers that are uh, now um, at sea um, are uh, in some sort of limbo. So there's a there's a buildup now of tankers uh, in the Black Sea. Um, preparing to enter, you know, in the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles because Turkish authorities are demanding uh, information about who's insuring them. So I think what we're seeing here is a situation where Russian government and the foreign ministry spokes uh, people have said they will continue to ship to those who do not enforce uh, the price cap. And, you know, predominantly we can think of China, India and other countries that won't go with um, the Western um, price cap. But what we're seeing is um, a situation where uh, insurers won't um, uh, insure Russian tankers. Russia's, you know, domestic insurers will insure them. But whether that will be accepted or not and what that looks like uh, remains to be seen. But this is a showdown um, and an, an escalation 
of the ongoing uh, economic warfare against the Russian Federation, uh, given the special military operation in Ukraine now. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit more about Turkey once again as linchpin here, because, you know, yeah, a lot of seaborne Russian oil is going to go through the Bosphorus Strait. Turkey, uh, you know, has control of that strait, and it will be up to Turkey to decide if it recognizes Russia's uh, Russia's domestic uh, maritime insurance. Uh, Turkey, as a member of NATO, is, of course, part of the bloc that is arming and supporting Ukraine in this conflict with Russia. Uh, but Turkey is also not cut off relations with Russia. They've brokered deals. Uh, you know, they, they were part of brokering the deal that allowed grain to continue flowing across the Black Sea. Uh, and Turkey is very good at looking out for its own national interests. And so I wonder what people should be watching here. You know, what people should be watching in terms of what how Turkey responds to this, what pressure is going to be coming from uh, from what side and, and what its its actions will say. But I think what uh, what we're seeing is um, Turkey in a, in a very good position um, to help broker um, some sort of uh, concessions from either side, um, given, you know, its own interests. So, yes, on one side, you have Turkey as a member of NATO, um, as a member that um, has uh, long sought to enter the European Union. On the other side, as a regional power that seeks to assert itself, uh, sort of a neo-Ottoman idea, and also very close with the Russian Federation, um, a very important trading partner, partner of Turkey is the Russian Federation. And so you see them now in a position that they've had so far for this past year, which has been brokering deals uh, between the West and Russia, um, whether it be grain deals or prisoner exchange. And now they find themselves uh, in a situation where they control a main artery of um, fuel from the Russian Federation out to its um, to its clients. So what remains to be seen is what Turkey can get from either side in the situation, whether the West will be offering more uh, to Turkey to help block um, the tankers or whether the Russian Federation will provide more to Turkey in terms of concessions to allow those tankers through without issue. So uh, it once again, a very convenient, uh, very opportunist uh, position for Turkey to be in. And uh, I believe that uh, they will try to get the upper hand, both because they have domestic elections coming up and they have a domestic economic crisis. And because uh, simultaneously they control a lot of what's going on in NATO now, given the the um, Sweden and Finland's application and the, their want of, uh, you know, extraditing uh, Kurdish um, militants to Turkey. So they find themselves in a good position now in terms of bargaining. Yeah, I mean, you wonder how long. Well, I was going to ask, you know, it seems like at some point Turkey is going to have to stop sort of straddling the line here and and do something for one side that alienates another. Right. Because you do feel like eventually. Uh, we, we're going to, you know, because these negotiations would seem to be between, you know, Russia, Russia and NATO with Turkey in between deciding how, you know, Russia deciding how much we're going to allow you to hurt us. <laughs> NATO deciding here's how much, you know, here's how much uh, um, uh, theatrical power we want to have, but we still actually want your oil. You know what I mean? So, but and I was going to say, eventually, Turkey is going to have to alienate one side or the other, but maybe not because geography is geography. Right. It's still going to be there. Uh, and I don't know. Yeah, I, I think one, uh, yeah, the, what Turkey, the role of Turkey in this and uh, this entire sort of geopolitical uh, crisis is it, it remains fascinating. I don't know, John, do you think like event, do you think Turkey's going to have to choose or everyone's going to have to just keep playing relatively nice with Turkey? Because what are you going to do? Oh, and I think that's what Turkey's goal is. Turkey's yeah. goal is to force everybody to continue to play nice. And I, I wanted to ask, too, if you don't mind me no. jumping in here. 
The Greek papers were were um, just beside themselves this morning because the Turkish defense minister said yet again that Turkey is prepared to invade Greece in the coming weeks unless the Greeks immili- uh, immediately demilitarize the Aegean islands. Now, the Turks have this election coming up in June and July. Uh, Erdogan is unpopular because inflation is so high and he's been so tough with the political opposition. Now he's got this issue with with tankers coming through that may or may not have uh, insurance or the appropriate insurance to allow the Turks to let them through the Dardanelles and the Bosporus. What's happening here? Like in the in the bigger picture, what is it exactly that the Turks are trying to accomplish? Well, I, I, that's a good question. That's a million dollar question now for for everybody looking at this, because um, what we have is a perfect storm mm-hmm. um, that could um, fizzle out, which is the hope of many um, who are advocating for peace and de-escalation to the situation in the region. But it could also become explosive because with that combination of an economic crisis, uh, Turkey uh, basically as uh, the the middleman between uh, the West and Russia and finding itself with its own um, political uh, crisis internally, uh, a war would uh, certainly uh, help rally the troops, so to speak, uh, around Erdogan to uh, at least achieve uh, short-term victories in the Aegean. And so that's what the the Greek side is very concerned about, also the Cypriot side, um, and uh, their allies um, in Washington, in Brussels, and elsewhere. The question is whether... um, you know, Turkey will uh, kind of look at this strategically and say, if we do something quick, will the West uh, bat an eye um, about it? You know, who can- that's the calculation right there. Yes, exactly. You know, and that's what they are. That's what they're leaning on heavily is that they don't think that the West will do much if it's a short term, 24, 48 hour um, operation where they take a couple of islands and they're able to expand their uh, economic zone, so to speak, their continental shelf. Um, and um I think ultimately that's the concern. The concern is not a long-term war, but a very short-term war that will have um, uh, lasting consequences for the region. Let's also get to this uh, strange story out of Germany. Uh, (laughs) Germany has arrested a group of 25 people on charges of plotting to violently overthrow the government. And as I mentioned earlier to John, some some of this story will be a little familiar Uh, among those arrested and a couple dozen more who are under investigation are former German soldiers or people with military training. Uh, The group is accused of actively recruiting among military personnel. And a German official told NBC someone under investigation is an active member of the military special forces group, though not part of the special forces. I don't understand how that can be. I don't understand how that can be true. Um, Yeah, I don't get it. Uh, But the group also includes former members of parliament uh, and a descendant of the former German royal family, if I have that right. Uh, The group alleged to be plotting to attack the German parliament is described as newly formed and dating only back to 2021. But there are people within it that have allegiances to past movements that uh, question the legitimacy of the German state. And so I wonder, you know, this is early days. We'll, we'll be finding out more about this as uh, German officials release information. But what 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 do you make of this? Uh, what can you tell us about some of these people? Um, what we've heard so far is that you have a, a, an interesting mix. You have uh, this Heinrich the 13th, uh, That's who, right. who's a descendant of the royal family. Um, you know, you have... Uh, German paratroopers and special operators 
from various military branches. Uh, you have uh, COVID deniers um, and uh, people, you know, who are, um, you know, active in the QAnon movement that's in Germany, not even in the U.S. Uh, it is spread, of course. Um, and uh, they have this belief that um, the deep state is controlling uh, basically a non-entity because uh, Germany doesn't really exist. Uh, they can uh, they believe they can renegotiate <laughs> with Russia and with other powers uh, to bring back uh, basically a German Reich, uh, which they believe is still uh, legally legitimate. So once again, you find yourself with an interesting crew of people. Um, it has eerie similarities uh, contemporary um, with the January 6th and also with uh, other movements in the U.S. We think about, you know, the, the group that wanted to um, take um, uh, the Michigan governor. Mm -hmm. Right. And also it, it it's eerily reminiscent of uh, Gladio and other operations from history in terms of Europe. So the question is whether this is something uh, serious or not. There's a there's there's, you know, a, a variety of reports now in the press. I know in Russia, they've been saying that this is actually um, a false flag. Uh, there's because, of course, they blamed it on Russia as well, that Russia was somehow involved with this group conspiring um, to bring down the German government. And the Russians uh, were saying today in the papers um, that this is just an opportunity for them to, um, you know, smoke in mirrors away from the impending energy crisis as winter approaches. And as the German populace is, uh, you know, really suffering as a result of uh, the sanctions and um, the ongoing economic warfare with the Russian Federation. So uh, it, it remains to be seen. Uh, it's new, but it has um, it, 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 it smells um, very strange to me. It's 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 reminiscent of a lot of things from history. And I don't quite know what to make of it yet. I think we will find out in the coming weeks and months what this is all about. Yeah, I mean, in the United States, uh, if this was something that was happening in the U.S., I would be very interested to learn just how many members of this organization were FBI informants or FBI yeah. agents. Right. As uh, you know, we learned about that case of the plot to kidnap uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer. But I don't know the habits of, of German investigators and prosecutors and if they, uh, you know, if, if they like to, you know, if they, if they have the same habit as their American counterparts of uh, orchestrating things like this. I have no idea. I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll hope that's not the case, you know, <laughs> it'd be nice if it was contained here, but yeah, that'll be, that'll be one of the interesting things to, to see. Um, and, and finally, I wanted to ask Chris, we, we're going to talk more about, uh, about this tomorrow. Um, but today I believe uh, Chinese president Xi Jinping is arriving in Saudi Arabia for a couple of days of very high level meetings and summits and I wanted to ask, you know, wh what you think both sides are hoping to come away from this visit with and and how significant this trip is. I think this is a very significant trip for a few reasons. Um, firstly, Saudi Arabia has become a pariah to the West. Um, and uh, of course, after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, um, the, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince, hasn't really been as welcome as he was prior to that. Um, and so regardless of the fist bumps that, you know, he and Joe Biden exchanged um, during uh, Joe Biden's, uh, you know, relatively recent trip to the region, um, I think that um, the Saudis are trying to position themselves also like Turkey as uh, basically a bridge between East and West. Um, and so they find themselves looking for partners who won't necessarily uh, interfere in their uh, domestic affairs. And the Chinese, of course, are more than willing to be economic partners already. They have tremendous projects on energy and um, on other building projects. 
And so I think the Chinese are looking for a good relationship with the Saudis, um, strengthening their coordinations, their actions, uh, strengthening um, peace mechanisms in the region, um, which is so vital for uh, not only economics, but for what Chinese eventually want to build, the, this Belt and Road Initiative. So um, they see the, the Saudi partnership as strategic and also beyond the Saudi partnership, just the, the Gulf in general. So all of the countries of the GCC. And then on the Saudi side, they find themselves with an economic partner that won't necessarily uh, care much about its human rights record or won't necessarily intervene, um, given, of course, uh, the Saudi brutal war along with the Emiratis against the Yemeni people and uh, especially, you know, the Houthis uh, and uh, the revolution happening in Yemen. So I think um, it, it will it will be a um, an enormous uh, win for both sides. Uh, what it will eventually shape up uh, in the region remains to be seen, of course. That was Christopher Halali. He's a political analyst and foreign affairs analyst. He's also an independent journalist. Uh, Chris, do you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find any of your recent work? Uh, sure. Um, I've published uh, two recent articles at Covert Action Magazine, um, so they can go take a look there. And then you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Halali. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Hey, I want to mention this story that I just saw uh, from earlier today that I think is very exciting. Carl Racine, the uh, attorney general of Washington, D.C., is suing Amazon for stealing tips from delivery drivers. Yes, I saw that. Through a deceptive illegal scheme that made consumers think they were increasing drivers' pay when Amazon was actually diverting tips to reduce its own labor costs. Crazy. So Amazon would solicit tips from customers. And I think uh, the complaint says that it would the, the default option uh, was a five dollar tip. Uh, no, but I don't remember. But it says it, it says 100 percent of your tip is going to the driver. This is a, a tip and it would give you a sort of pre-selected default tip and say this is going to go to your driver. So customers would select this and it worked that way for about a year or so. And then Amazon was like, well, what if we just take some we'll of these steal the money. and we'll just pay? We pay less for their salaries. Yeah. We have talked about this before. Uh, this was a widespread practice. And after uh, an investigation and exposure in 2019, Amazon paid restitution to drivers as part of a settlement uh, with the FTC. And again, I just want to point out. This is a company owned by uh, a man who's constantly in the running for world's richest, although yes, he's not at the top constantly. of the pile right now. He used to be. It's one of the um, you know biggest uh, companies in the world. It's got tons and tons of money. How does it make that money? By stealing amounts of uh, dollar increments from its drivers who it refuses to even yeah. treat as employees and give health insurance to, right? This yeah. is how, yeah, a bucket of time stealing from you is how someone becomes a billionaire. Just want to point that out. So anyway... They settled with the FTC. What Racine's office is doing is saying you didn't pay any civil penalties in connection with misrepresenting uh, this tip system to consumers, these deceptive tipping policies. So that is what this uh, this suit is about. I think it's I think it's great. Right. I mean, yeah, I sure they were able to settle and settle. And now, yeah, you were you know, you were ripping off the drivers, yeah. but you were also lying to consumers. Yeah, so that's sure, right. That's right. The there ought that. to be a, a penalty to that. Yep. Yep. Hey, the, uh, do we have time? Yeah, we got time. Are we going to go to a, a break? We don't have to. Uh, we can do whatever we want. It's our it's show. It's our show. <laughs> there you go. The, the Federal Bureau of Prisons today came out with an Inspector General's report, a 65-page Inspector General's report on the murder of Whitey Bulger. 
Mm-hmm. They finally investigated this thing. Whitey Bulger was killed in prison in Hazleton, West Virginia in 2018. This whole thing is fascinating to me. Everybody knew. I mean, if anybody who had ever heard of Whitey Bulger knew that if he were put in general population, he would be killed. In fact, he had been in a prison in Florida, was transferred to Hazleton in West Virginia, and was murdered 12 hours after arriving there. So what happened was, in Florida, Whitey Bulger, 89 years old, confined to a wheelchair with a life-threatening cardiac ailment, um, threatened a nurse. And the nurse didn't appreciate this old man threatening her. Mm -hmm. So the warden at the prison in Florida downgraded the severity of Whitey Bulger's cardiac problem to make him eligible for transfer to another prison. Oh. Okay, problem number one. Yes. Problem number two, the warden of Hazleton is a showboater who likes to go on TV and say, hey, I've got all these famous prisoners in my prison. Let me tell you some stories about them. Mm. He volunteered to take Bulger, knowing that putting him in general population was going to be a risk to his life. As soon as he got there, uh, a guy named Freddie Gaius, a guy named Polly D. Colangelo, D. D. Colagero, and somebody else recognized Whitey Bulger. Sean McKinnon. Thank you, Sean McKinnon. Recognized Whitey Bulger, wheeled him over to a corner where the security cameras uh, don't cover, and Everybody, I'm telling you from firsthand experience, literally everybody in prison knows exactly where the security cameras don't cover. And they beat him to death with a padlock in a sock. So now they've all been indicted on charges of conspiracy to commit first degree murder. They're already all three serving life without parole, so it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah. Uh, And the uh, inspector general is recommending that something like uh, a dozen different Bureau of Prisons employees be disciplined. One of the interesting things to me, though, is that this inspector general's report concludes, get this, no Bureau of Prisons employees acted with malicious intent. Okay. Come yeah, on. Sure. Right. Yeah. Come on I mean, now. this is how like this is how uh, the Pentagon will inspect its its failures. Right. And will uncover a, a chain of failures across multiple levels. And then also discover that actually no one's at fault and no one deserves any disciplinary right. action. Right. Yeah. This happens yeah. every single day in the Bureau of Prisons. Yeah. Every single day. Listen, no love lost for Whitey Bulger. He was in prison on 11 murder charges, including beating to death two women who were utterly innocent of anything. He was just afraid that they would eventually, perhaps, maybe someday talk to the feds yeah. about what they knew. But, you know, yeah, I mean, if they weren't if they didn't if they were not aware they were signing his death warrant, then they professionally incompetent. That's right. Yeah. And shouldn't be employees of the Bureau of Prisons. Exactly. I think we're going to skip this break. OK. That was a fun. That was a it, we have a lot to get to now about what's going on we in do. Argentina. We are going to talk about, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Vice President of Argentina, Christina Kirchner. She was convicted by a court yesterday on fraud charges and sentenced to six years in prison for embezzling money through public construction contracts. This is according to the Wall Street Journal, which reports that the three-judge panel said Kirchner and several other former aides would be banned from holding public office. Uh, She is, however, currently the vice president. And so I'm confused about this, right? Because, again, as the Wall Street Journal... former president. Yeah, she's a former (laughs) president. 
current vice president. I keep seeing these reports write that she is immune from prosecution, which the wording of that really confuses me because that she was clearly prosecuted. She has now been convicted and sentenced. Yes. It's very unlikely that she will serve any time. Uh, because of this immunity, also because she's about to turn 70 and Argentine law prohibits jail time for people over 70. Um, But, you know, how this happened and what it means for Argentina is interesting and how this perhaps reflects on our understanding of uh, the what was done to Lula in Brazil and what could be coming in the future is worth getting into. And so joining us to, I hope, answer some of these questions we have is Dennis Rogatuk. He lives in Latin America and he's international director of El Ciudad Año, the media platform. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Dennis. Uh, It's always a pleasure. Shale, John, good to talk to you. So I'd I'd also like to say that Kirchner, of course, says she says this is a political persecution that uh, does not adhere to the country's constitution, uh, that it was organized by a judicial mafia that is running a parallel state in Argentina. And so I want to get into all of those questions. But I wanted to start off by asking you, what what is this prosecution about and how was it allowed to go forward if she's supposed to be immune to prosecution? Well, Michelle, I think uh, really, we, really, we should start with you know highlighting a bit of a history uh, between, uh, well, I'd say between uh, Christina Kirchner and, uh, as you say, as what she calls the judicial mafia uh, in the country, because this is not the first time uh, that they that they have attempted to to convict and imprison uh, Christina. Uh, not just on corruption uh, charges either. Uh, we, because uh, uh, just to go through a bit of a, a bit of a summary of the last uh, few years, actually the most uh, there was actually an arrest warrant issued against Christina back in 2017 by uh, one of the one of the key uh, judges, uh, Claudio uh, Bonadi, uh, who is a uh, who is a, you know part of the part of the federal uh, criminal. Uh, court. Uh, now these charges uh, were. Uh, this is this arrest warrant was related to the alleged um, uh, bombing, uh, the alleged, alleged uh, connection between Christina Kirchner and and the 1994 uh, AMIA bombing in uh, Buenos Aires. So this was a bombing which was which was allegedly organized by members of Hezbollah with support uh, from Iran, from Iran, and. And, well, and how Christina actually plays into that allegedly is uh, through the is her apparent what they called endorsement of terrorist attacks by uh, assigning the mem- a memorandum of um, uh, uh, by assigning a, me- a memorandum uh, between the governments of Argentina and Iran okay. uh, back in 2010, if I'm not uh, mistaken, which which effectively you know prohibited you know the persecution of. Uh, of Iranian nationals on the Argentine uh, soil uh, without, um, uh, I believe, you know, for, uh, for alleged acts, uh, alleged acts of terrorism where there was no substantial evidence. I believe, I believe it was similar to that. So this was the, this was the previously one of the biggest criminal cases that was built against her. And eventually, eventually uh, the case was dismissed on October 7th, uh, 2021. The current uh, persecution uh, against Christina, as you said, actually is, is related to um, to the allegations of uh, you know of, of of Christina and other members of the government uh, receiving uh, kickbacks from uh, construction projects, public construction projects, uh, during her her administration. And I have to say, 
This is a script which I have read and which, which, which I have seen in every single lawfare and political persecution case all throughout Latin America. Because, oh, because, oh, because we have to remember that uh, political figures like Jorge Glass in Ecuador, um, Dilma Rousseff in, um, uh, in, in Brazil, Lula da Silva also in Brazil, uh, they were all, I say, convicted or dismissed, or were, oh no, some kind of a, you know, uh, uh, political and legal persecution uh, was made against them. Almost always based on this, uh, on this one particular case, which they, uh, which was built against them. That was the, that was always the case of, of, you know, of either construction projects or real estate. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is, yeah. you know, this has been, this has started to sound like a real uh, broken record here. Mm-hmm. Uh, now this um, now uh, the current case against Cristina was was initiated uh, say back in 2016 so uh, say right after Mauricio Macri uh, took over as the pre- as the president uh, of of Argentina uh, now the I, I, I think I think it's important to also to also get into the uh, say some of the background of the judges which are involved uh, in this case and also and their political association political and commercial association uh, with uh, some of the figures of Mauricio Macri's government and also some of the businessmen that are that are very close to the country's right-wing uh, political elite. So perhaps you, 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 you had a question that was related to that? Well, I wanted to ask, I mean, one, can you just, I don't understand how you can be immune to prosecution and, and also prosecuted. I realize, I, I feel like I must be missing something. I'm just curious, is it is this like, how... <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, I think also so there, may, there might be a bit of a word, wordplay here because uh, in under the Argentinian law, as you said, uh, members of elected uh, office on the federal level, mm-hmm. perhaps perhaps on state level as well, I'm not really sure, on the federal level, so that means president, vice president, senators, and deputies are immune are immune from from, perse- from persecution. So what a federal court. Like, oh, sorry, the federal tribunal uh, can do is basically uh, is 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 what I, is what I was actually saying. You know, recommend the sentence really. Okay. Uh, when it when you know when it is levied, levied against uh, uh, someone who is immune uh, from from prosecution, they they can only they can only really recommend it. Mm-hmm. Now the but uh, I guess so 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 it, it is something that that they are unable to do mm-hmm. while Christina still holds elected office. She said that she, you know, she's not going to resign. You know, uh, you know the current government uh, is is only is only due to you know leave office on uh, December thirteenth, if I uh, if I'm not mistaken. So following the general elections uh, of next year, and uh, but um, uh, but even it's also important to note that you know for a for a prosecution uh, like this to actually succeed, you know, while Christina is is still governed, while her party is still governed. Mm-hmm. It, it would actually need also need to be approved by the uh, by the Congress of Argentina, mm-hmm. so both the House of Representatives and also the Senate, uh, which is which again is impossible because um, uh, the uh, Cristina Kirchner's and Alberto Fernandez uh, political coalition holds a majority, a slim majority in both uh, chambers. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a semantic issue. It's clearly not the most important. It just boggles them. It's like you wouldn't even get to a conviction if you were immune to prosecution. And I don't understand, but it's not really important. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I would be interested in hearing, you know, it sounds to me like these particular charges uh, against Kirchner are sort of similar to what happened to Dilma Rousseff in, in Brazil. And so, you know, I'm curious if you if you want to tell us a little bit more about you know, about what those charges were. But I'm also interested in, in 
you know, this she talks about the, the judiciary, a judicial mafia operating a parallel state. And as you say, this is not the first lawsuit that has been brought against her. And so I wonder if you can talk about, you know, what what she means by that um, and and how that has come to be set up in Argentina. Right. Uh, because I can see, you know, some some judges are appointed, some judges are elected. But clearly she is suggesting that the, the judiciary branch of the country is engaged in, in a warfare with the rest of the state. And I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about how you know, is is that the case and how that came to be? Certainly. Well, not the first, as you said, not the first, not the first case against her to be, you know, uh, to be built and also not the first one to, that will, that, you know, that could be dismissed. There's a lot to unpack there. I think it's important. I'll, I'll, I'll start off with, you know, comparing the cases between Christina and Dilma Rousseff. Now, it's important to note that, uh, you know, Dilma Rousseff was dismissed uh, from her, was impeached and was dismissed from her from her position, not to, with charges not related directly to corruption per se. Rather, it was related to uh, I think what they called uh, uh, budgetary manipulation. I think that's that would be the rough mm-hmm. translation of yeah. the charge yeah. uh, against her. So basically, uh, which which is really uh, <laughs> funny. Funny enough, it was a technique that, that has been used, you know, by presidents uh, of, of Brazil uh, for decades. So it was it was kind of a an accounting adjustment technique. Yeah, earmarking funds for projects before the funds were there and then sending them from, you know what I mean? It was just like a way of, yeah, I, yeah. But just like in the case of Dilma Rousseff, this is a purely political uh, uh, action. Like, you know, this is a this is a purely political persecution that was meant uh, to dismiss her from uh, from the position, but also to, 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 in, to try to attempt to, you know, to raise her political and economic uh, legacy. It was very interesting to watch Christina's uh, message and Christina's response uh, to this, uh, you know, the, uh, on the same day. Uh, she basically, uh, you know, she basically said, they're not, they're not uh, persecuting the, um, they're not persecuting, uh, ju- you know, just her. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is that they're trying to, uh, to condemn and put, and, uh, uh, to condemn the you know the economic model, the economic of sorry the model of economic development which she built, which her husband Nestor Kirchner built in Argentina, which was of course you know responsible for uh, you know lifting millions out of poverty through mass social and uh, public projects, you know st- you know stabilizing the country after you know the, the lost decade mm-hmm. of neoliberalism of, of you know of, uh, building international projects in in Latin America like UNASUR and and CELAC. so. So really, it's a it is a tool in, uh, to attempt to erase, to erase history. That's uh, that is effectively you know what we what we're seeing here, and this is exactly what we're seeing, what we saw in the case of of Dilma Talking now about the judicial mafia, which uh, which said now I am not exactly an expert on the legal system of, of Argentina. I do believe that there is a, there, there is a um, it does follow kind of a mixed system when it comes to the election and selection of the the judges of the you know uh, the Supreme Court, the federal court. Because I but I understand uh, I, I know I know for certain that you know the pre, you know the presidency does not have direct say over over the selection of uh, of the judges. Now the but when uh, Christina refers to the judicial mafia, she actually also refers to a very particular group of people that have been involved, uh, you know, in building uh, this case against her. And these are the people who are, who are you know, within the different uh, you know levels of the of the ju- ju- judicial system, uh, because uh, here we have well, well, the biggest fish there is uh, Julian. 
Piccolini, who is uh, you know one of the uh, who is in charge of the of this of this investigations against Cristina. Uh, but also there is the uh, Attorney General of the Buenos Aires, Juan Bautista Baiques, who, who was appointed by the uh, uh, the administration of, of the city of Buenos Aires, which is under the, under the control of the right-wing uh, pro-party, which was, uh, which is of course, the political party of ex-president Mauricio Macri. Uh, she... Uh, well, there's, there's, there's actually one kind of a specific... A uh, piece of evidence, which has been used by Christina and by her supporters, really, to, really to show and demonstrate, you know, the links between uh, the, uh, you know, the most well-known uh, names uh, in judiciary and also the right wing uh, and the country's right wing as well. This piece of evidence is a particular a flight which they which, which they took uh, on October 12 on October 13th. Sorry. Uh, so uh, the members whom I just uh, mentioned. Flew from uh, from Buenos Aires to uh, uh, to to region in Patagonia to meet with a uh, English uh, multimillionaire, Joe Lewis. Nothing to do with with the boxer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, Joe Lewis, now now Joe Lewis, uh, uh, who also who owns you know uh, massive amounts of uh, property and real estate uh, throughout the south of Argentina, is a close associate and confidant of ex-president uh, Mauricio Macri. The, so a meeting took place uh, that included a group of these uh, of these individuals, and I say one of the also one of the richest men in Argentina with uh, strong links to uh, to the former uh, right wing right wing president. The and uh, following this meeting, there was a um, uh, kind of uh, the archives of the uh, archives of uh, of the Telegram channel were. Uh, were, were released on the conversations between them, where it, where it showed that you know they expressed worry and concern that uh, you know their meeting and their connection would be exposed to the media, and it, and it, and it was. And three days ago, it was. Uh, Pagina Dose, or Pagina, uh, page page twelve, as we call it in English, which is one of the major uh, newspapers in Argentina, actually you know revealed you know the leaks that have been. Uh, you know of these of these conversations between uh, between these figures, which I would say is actually quite similar, very similar to what we saw in the case of Brazil, and the investigation that was conducted uh, by um, Glenn Greenwald and the and the Intercept, which which revealed uh, you know the collusion between Judge Sergio Moro and the various um, and also the various political figures, you know you know actually you know attempting to use attempting to you know use judicial powers to persecute and imprison. Well, that's and that is and that is exactly what Christina is talking about when she talks about the judicial mafia. So these very same, very similar types of techniques that have been used. It is interesting, you know, that we are talking about this as uh, Lula prepares to take the presidency of Brazil once again. So it does seem to have been, you know, it was a process that was uh, effective in the short term, but certainly not in the long term. And so I want to ask, we've only got a couple minutes left. I might ask if you can stay over this break so I can get in a final question. But, you know, what do you think, as you say, this is an attack on uh, an economic agenda. Uh, how successful do you think it will be? Has this has this prosecution been popular? Definitely an attack on the economic agenda, on the whole economic model, as, as I mentioned before. Now, 
the alongside you know this judicial warfare, this law, uh, this lawfare that has been waged against Christian education, there's also been a you know a mass media campaign against uh, well not not just now but I'll say for a good part of the last decade you know even going back to when she herself uh, was the president of the country. <laughs> You know, one of the major uh, newspapers of the country, uh, Clarín, uh, has been uh, probably has been you know in the uh, in the for- in the forefront of uh, you know running news articles and uh, front and, and front page attacks against her and against the other members of the government in a very similar manner to what we saw against Lula in Brazil and against other left wing figures uh, around the country. Uh, but with, with regards to, pop- to popularity and whether it's whether this could actually succeed. It's important to you know to make to make a few points and also to, to actually see what you know what what, what kind of advantages uh, Christina has in mind. Christina, be, as I said before, being the vice president, cannot be imprisoned and she can stay in, off, in the elected office you know until the uh, until December of twenty uh, twenty three. That's one you know that's one pro. We have to go to this break, Dennis. So keep the other points uh, after this break. We got a hard break. We can't avoid it. We've been talking to journalist Dennis Rogatuk, and we're going to continue this conversation on the other side of this break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we're continuing our conversation with uh, Latin America-based journalist Dennis Rogatuk. Dennis, you were talking to us about some uh, protections that Christina Kirchner has uh, that were not necessarily in place when perhaps the same kind of lawfare was attempted against the government of uh, Lula da Silva and Dilma Rousseff, you said, you know, first of all, Christina Kirchner is in office. She is serving as the vice president. Uh, she will be there for, uh, I think, another year. Uh, and go on. You, please continue. As I was, uh, yes, as I was explaining, uh, the last question that you asked, you know, just how successful could this persecution be, the popularity and uh, whatnot? The, uh, now, here's something very important uh, to note. One of the key advantages which Christina has is a you know a, a, a massive and a well you know well disciplined social and political base. So this is not just you know the current political coalition which is supporting her. This is not just you know Alberto Fernandez uh, who is uh, you know who is still behind her who is who, you know who is still supporting her you know in this uh, persecution. But also it's this you know this base of social movements and trade union movements uh, which Cristina has. Uh, uh, who support Christina? Uh, you know, one or you know, through years of of implementing you know so, uh, social programs, of implementing you know reforms to uh, to improve uh, labor conditions, minimum wage, you know, of, of investing in the country's education and healthcare sector. So, so, uh, so Christina, ha- Christina is probably the only politician in the country which has you know this sort of uh, this sort of su- support that is. Uh, you know that is built around, you know, her particular legacy and her particular <coughs> uh, leadership. And on the very, on the on the day of the sentencing, you know, even before the sentencing, you know, was carried out, there were there were mass, there were people were already amassing in Buenos Aires in the center of Buenos Aires, 
you know, to express their support uh, for her. And this is, this has really been the case, say for the last, uh, I'll say in the in last years, whenever something like this has has come up. And here, I think it's very important to mention something else: uh, is that 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 uh, Christina has also been, you know, hasn't just been a victim of political and legal uh, media perse- uh, prosecution, but or persecution, I should say, but also of, of an attempted assassination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as several, uh, as I believe, um, a month ago, a month ago, there was an attempted, uh, uh, there was an attempt on her life. Uh, was made during a rally in her support outside of uh, outside of her home, which once again, you know, actually had to do exactly, uh, you know, with the, uh, with this uh, with this case. So uh, a gunman. Uh, actually, a Brazilian, a, a Brazilian national with affiliations to uh, Bolsonaro's political party attempted to assassinate her, but uh, the the gun that that he used uh, jammed, you know, right, you know, you know, right, you know, and actually, right in the moment when when uh, uh, when she was, uh, you know, when she was, you know, greeting the people yeah. uh, around her. This this also, I think, had a tremendous effect on, I would say, I would say, on her supporters and on the. Um, uh, and on this, and on her social uh, base, it, it was you know in one of the one of the speeches which she gave uh, recently, and one of the other, uh, and what supporters have been saying is that you know they they failed to kill her physically, so now they so now they're trying they're attempting to kill off uh, her legacy. They know you know they they basically going back to this to, to the illegal case that was dismissed against her. So the, so the bombing the nineteen ninety four Buenos Aires bombing, you know. The dismissal of this case, you know, was seen was seen as a huge victory for for her. So so it was a, a failure to prevent her from, you know, continuing her duties as vice president and continuing to be a political figure. So the so the, the momentum has been on the side of, of of Christina. That is the momentum of you know, in terms of, in terms of numbers, and also in terms of uh, you know her success and her. Uh, her ability to overcome, uh, you know, these constant attacks uh, against her. It's hard to say. I say it, it is hard to say if this legal case would, would succeed against uh, would succeed against her, or at least you know, you know, temp- or, or in some way, uh, you know, prevent her from standing uh, in in the future. Because I think that that aspect of the persecution against her is actually much more important than the. Uh, you know, than, than her imprisonment. It could be that you know they wouldn't be able to actually you know throw her in, throw her in prison, you know, because of uh, due, due to her age uh, or whatnot, or if she wins the appeal. But the barring of but you know this barring from uh, standing for for political office, I think that is the as the much bigger and much more important component mm-hmm. of the sentence. You know, this is an attempt basically to prevent her to basically basically to erase her role in the in the country's political life. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask, I know we, we have to let you go, Dennis, but I did want to ask quickly um, if you can tell us anything about this breaking news that uh, Peru's president has dissolved, temporarily uh, dissolved Congress uh, just before the Congress was going to debate a motion for uh, what is being described as a legislative coup to remove uh, to the Pedro Castillo, the, the left wing president. What's going on in Peru? Well, you know, this would have this would have now been, I believe, a fourth time that the, that the Peruvian Congress would have attempted an impeachment vote against uh, Pedro Castillo, and according to the numbers that I that I also that I saw uh, among the congressional seats, uh, that the, that motion still would have would have failed. 
as you know, as a motion like that would have required 87 votes, and the opposition, you know, in the best, in the absolute best case scenario, only had about 84 or 85. Uh, so, so, so President Pedro Castillo, you know, still had a um, a minority, still held kind of a minority in Congress, which would have prevented uh, this. But I think it goes a lot deeper than you know, than this one single motion. So the uh, uh, the Peruvian Congress, which has been dominated by various right-wing political parties, the chief of, of them is is a party called Popular Force, which is the uh, political party of uh, former President uh, Fujimori and also of his daughter Kaiko uh, uh, Fujimori, Alberto and Kaiko Fujimori. These uh, and the, the Congress has, has effectively been, you know, been used as a, as a as a tool, say, by the right-wing political powers and. Really, by the by, the opposition to Pedro Castillo to basically to, to, to prevent and to prevent the implementation of any kind of you know social uh, uh, progressive uh, reform in the country. Uh, the Peruvian Congress has also uh, time and time and time again, you know, declined uh, various uh, nominees uh, for uh, you know for cabinet uh, positions because we have to remember we have to remember that the, that in Peru. Uh, uh, a, ca- a presidential cabinet needs to be approved uh, by Congress, and uh, time and time again, the various progressive figures uh, were were dismissed or were uh, or did not receive the congressional uh, approval. Now, so the country for the last one and a half years really has been, you know, has been living in this, you know, this tag of war between uh, uh, between a left wing president and a right wing dominated. Congress. So I, so I, I believe, I believe Pedro Garcia has, has finally had enough of these, uh, you know, of the, of the shenanigans that have been pulled, that have been pulled by, uh, by the right wing within, within the Congress. Uh, and also, uh, the Congress, as, when we look at also at the poll numbers, so the popularity of Congress, you know, this is, this is now the, uh, the most unpopular, uh, Congress in Peru's history. I believe I believe, I believe uh, one of the last polls that revealed that it has a, a negative rating of about eighty three percent, eighty three, eighty five percent, something something like that. Yeah. Now the numbers for Pedro Castillo are not a lot better. Mm-hmm. I believe the last uh, approval poll revealed that he has twenty seven, twenty eight percent approval. Still better than Congress, but you know there's a, there's this kind of sense of. Uh, Great uh, sense of you know, kind of anger and distrust among the Peruvian public uh, against you know the both constitutions of the country. Well, chief of the, against the presidency, but chief of them, of them is Congress. So it would be really interesting to see what what happens now in Peru. And I think shenanigans is the right word, right? Everything but outright winning elections to try to oust leftist leaders. Uh, that was Dennis Rogatuk. He is the head of El Ciudadano. It's a media platform. He lives in Latin America. Dennis, always great to talk to you. We've got to move on to some domestic news, but thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Always a pleasure. And we are going to move on to some domestic news. Georgia Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock last night defeated Republican Herschel Walker in the state's Senate runoff 51.4 to 48.6. You know, I said last spring Pretty close. that Herschel Walker was one of those can't lose in the fall, can't win in the spring candidates. Man, I was almost wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, The race ended up being as close as the polls told us it was going to be. The victory gives the Democrats a majority of one seat in the U.S. in the U.S. Senate, which is actually a bigger deal than it might seem. Democrats will now have one more member than Republicans on every committee. They had had an equal number of uh, Democrats and Republicans on each committee until until today. 
Um, Democrats will have a bigger Senate budget. They'll have more office space. They'll have more staff. And Vice President Kamala Harris will no longer need to hang around Washington all the time to break tie votes, something that she's actually complained about in public. The runoff caps a strong midterm election for the Democrats. Get this. They picked up a Senate seat, three governor's mansions, and both the state house and state Senate in three different states. This is the first time that this has happened to the party that controls the White House since 1934. So it was a good year for Democrats. The Trump organization yesterday was found guilty in a New York court on 17 counts of tax fraud and falsifying business records. The company now faces $1.61 million in fines. You can't imprison a company after all. And Donald Trump has predictably gone crazy over the verdict on Truth Social, his media company. With that said, the verdict, coupled with the Georgia Senate race, shows that Trump is not the Teflon figure that he was even recently in the Republican Party, as more and more Republican officials criticize him publicly and walk away from him politically. And scandal continues at Twitter. We're learning today that Twitter's general counsel, former FBI general counsel James Baker, was fired yesterday and escorted out of the building because he had been vetting the Twitter files that were being released to journalist Matt Taibbi without CEO Elon Musk's knowledge. Now, how that happens, I have no idea. Now analysts are wondering whether Baker held back any relevant documents. We're joined by journalist, activist, and commentator Arne Menconi. Arne was the 2018 Green Party nominee for the United States Senate in Colorado. Or maybe that was 16. It was 2016, actually. Uh, he's a former Colorado elected official, and you can find his work at consortiumnews.com. Arne, good to have you back. It's been a long time. Hi, John. Hi, Michelle. Arn, let's start with the Georgia Senate race. Today's papers are saying that the country is changing quickly and that Florida and Ohio are no longer the purple bellwethers that they once were. Now those bellwethers are Georgia and Arizona. Do you agree with that? I don't know. It's so hard to feel like I've been, we've all been so hyped up on everything mm -hmm. and we're still trying to analyze everything. All of what is this saying? Clearly, Florida has shifted. I once lived in Florida. We saw the results there. It seems like Arizona has become a very uh, bifurcated state. Um, when we're watching these races, we've always seen for decades that they were fighting over 2% here, 2%, 1% of the vote. I could remember. Um, working on a Senate campaign in Colorado when Colorado was a red state and, right. and talking to the candidate then saying, you know, Arne, we're just fighting over a couple points here and there. I think the biggest thing that's come out of this is the money in these races. Oh, yeah. No one could have ever predicted. I read a number of $113 million for the Georgia race that was raised just recently. Yeah, for a job that pays $177,000. Right. And in Colorado, we saw like no one reported that Governor Polis won his race, yes, by double digits, but he threw in $11 million of his own money. He outspent his his opponent something like uh, $18 million to maybe $8 million, you know. And uh, when you start to factor in how much money goes behind these things, but in, in what, how you how you set up the question, it clearly feels to me like 
we've we've really baked in this sort of civil war or this division between the two groups, uh, whatever you want to call it. You know, when I ran for I ran for U.S. Senate Green Party in 2016, I ran for U.S. Senate Democrat or U.S. Congress or in Bopart's district as a Democrat. And it just is like, it's so fascinating and so weird to see how this is just where we're at. Red Sox versus uh, White Sox like we haven't seen before. You know, I used to say there's a two-party system, the inside party and the outside party. Now it feels a little bit uh, like all we're fixated on is these, this uh, sort of neo-fascist marrying the Christian right versus the oligarchic uh, corporate Democrats. Yeah. Oh, I, I, you get no argument out of me. Every major news outlet and many Republican elected officials today are saying that the victory last night of Senator Raphael Warnock is the political death knell for Donald Trump. He has had an absolutely terrible week. He endorsed the losing campaign of Herschel Walker. His company was convicted yesterday on 17 felonies in New York. We learned today that the Justice Department is investigating Trump in three different states for his efforts to impose these phony electors. He was roundly condemned for having a dinner meeting with anti-Semite Kanye West and white supremacist Nick Fuentes. And worse than that, he disingenuously called for the suspension of the Constitution itself so that he could be reinstated as president. Tell us what's next next for Donald Trump. The polls show that 45 percent of Republicans still want him to be president. Can he run a serious campaign? Has he ever? Yeah, he won. He 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 has perfected how to run a train wreck. Where uh, yeah. like a everyone is watching a car crash. It's a and what he did is he creates this grabbing the news cycle, grabbing the news cycle, grabbing the news cycle, and I, no one would have ever thought something like this would have worked. Of course, all the pundits on uh, the left are saying, yes, he always resurrects, but this time he's dead. I think we've got to be a little careful about making future predictions. The fact is he's going to run. He's going to be the front runner. Trumpianism is here to stay right now, whether or not it's him running or DeSantis who becomes the lead. Uh, it, it, it's and and then you know as uh, I think it was Gore Vidal said we're the United States of amnesia. Yes. So how much is people going to forget? But the things that he has done and what the Supreme Court has done and what the money has done certainly influenced this last election. And uh, I think the other thing that we'll have to see is whether or not Biden uh, decides to not run again, which right. I would say I, I would think that feels like the direction it's headed. Well, the first lady hinted yesterday that he's he's going to announce his candidacy for reelection just after the new year, something that we touched on briefly yesterday, but we're going to have to keep a close eye on. Uh, Arn, the Senate victory gives Democrats a very little bit of breathing room, but not much. Chuck Schumer, though, still has to worry about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. With this bare majority, should we expect to see any new or perhaps controversial legislation coming out of the Senate? 51 votes, after all, is a long way from the 60 votes needed to invoke cloture and, and debate. What do you expect? 
I don't expect anything significant to come out of the Senate once the new Senate uh, is sworn in with the new Congress. Uh, what I do see is how hard are they going to play with uh, push Bernie Sanders' uh, War Power Act uh, bill that he's going to present this week on Yemen mm-hmm. and whether or not uh, that should pass the Senate. It should pass the House. It's similar to the 2019 bill that was vetoed by Donald Trump. That'll give us an example. So I think watching what kind of uh, bills they try to pass right now is going to give uh, an understanding of what's going to happen next. And even if they do try to do certain things that are significant, it could be a sort of legislative virtue signaling, which I think they should do. I hope they try to do these things because it's going to then die in Congress. It's not going to get passed in Congress. So they should be using this next year to really show how they could put policies in place. They should have learned out of this last election that it was the young people. It was the social service policies that got passed that really saved them. This is what we're seeing in in the results of what happened in this last election. Uh, Let's talk about the conviction in New York of the Trump Organization. The testimony during the trial was that Donald Trump was fully aware that the company, his company, was defrauding the state. New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg said this morning that it is still possible that the state will file criminal charges against Trump himself for fraud. What do you see happening here? Do state charges even matter compared to what Trump is facing federally? When you say matter, can you expand on that? Well, I mean, it seems like he's got more important things to worry about, like, you know, trying to overthrow a Democratic uh, election. Uh, If the company has already been found guilty, might New York jurors just think that it would be overkill to charge him with fraud at the state level? I hope not. Um, I I think when you say matter, the first thing that comes to me is I I, in. You know, in my world and talking to people, if it's about politics or their day to day, what I'm always amazed by is most people aren't really paying attention to this level of what's happening. Um, I was asking people at work last uh, yesterday if they are following the race on Tuesday. Some say, oh, we're not going to talk about politics, are we? So I wonder how much is the burnout factor? I think Trump is the king at running out the clock or finding different ways to keep dragging it out. You already quoted the kind of uh, polling that's going on for him. So uh, he will, uh, I was surprised to see that this came out the way it did. I'm happy that it did. Um, I think it's going to continue to be another um, arrow in his back uh, that's going to wound him. I guess if I was to say anything, I, I, it feels to me almost like the, the the leaders of the Republican Party are basically saying to whoever, whatever the issue is, we're going to throw them under the bus. Go ahead, let them convict them, do all of that. We want them out of the way because he's, he's destroying their hopes for uh, what their future uh, elections are going to try to be like. So as as a person on the left, that makes perfect sense. But what about voters on the right? What do you think about Trump's political future inside the Republican Party? If this week was any indication, it seems that he's finished. 
Certainly other Republican presidential hopefuls think that he is. He was criticized yesterday by Mike Pence yet again. He was criticized for the second time this week yesterday by uh, Mitch McConnell. That's unusual. But the polls show that he is still popular among Republican rank and file. Trump is already a declared presidential candidate. He's the only declared presidential candidate. Do you think that he still has a future among Republicans? We could go back five years ago, and this question could have been said, does a man who was a reality TV show, Trump, with everything that happened with uh, the Hollywood tape and all of this, yeah. does he have a future? No one could have ever, ever. So I would say I feel very confident about watch what kind of things that we see happen that we never could have imagined before. You kind of think, well, yeah, but with all of this baggage, he's not going to be able to get it over the hump. But until there's whoever the others are and how they fought, I mean, who could have thought that he could have outdone Jeb Bush and the others yeah. that were on the, the stages of the yeah. 12? Yeah, Jeb Bush was the anointed candidate. You're right. Right. So so we see this. And then the other thing that has to be is like I, I was a county commissioner in the Vale Valley where I got to meet presidential candidate senators. I was at Michael Eisner's house with Feinstein and Pelosi. And the, what I learned in, in that stage is you got to watch where the money's uh, positioning themselves. And the money always seems to go with whoever they think is going to win the horse race. Mm -hmm. um, I would think that the money is saying, OK, it's time to pull them off the mound and we got to bring in somebody else. We just can't take this all the time. But again, I've been wrong so many times and everybody's been wrong so many times. So I would say this is a new reality and we got to expect this and I'll leave it there. Yeah. I want to switch over to Twitter. Uh, Twitter seems to be operating in a state of chaos right now. Matt Taibbi's revelations over the weekend were pretty dramatic. Now we're learning that Twitter's general counsel, James Baker, vetted the documents first. Elon Musk fired him on the spot. Um, do you think documents were withheld? Um, if so, should we expect to see them in the next tranche, which is supposed to be released soon? And something that Michelle and I have been discussing is it's it's perfectly, completely normal for the general counsel of a company to take a look at something like this before it's released to a to a journalist. Why why the uh, the sudden decision by Musk to not just fire James Baker, but have him escorted out of the building so unceremoniously? I don't know. This is I, this is one of the things of what are you seeing and what are you thinking about it first? What did you guys discuss on this? Because I, the big revelation for me was going back to that December when they were trying to bring out the Biden uh, issues and, and laptop or whatever you want to say about it. It was definitely muted, squashed. And um, a lot of us, a lot of people, I can't say which way I stood on it. I can't remember, but I think the takeaway is how much information are we always being or not be, being uh, given? How is it being influenced? If it was what Bernie was doing and what the uh, Podesta was saying and his emails, and then it's so interesting about how the left comes out and immediately tries to crucify Matt when, in fact, we need to have those kind of information because 
granted, it's a corporation. They get to do whatever they want. To. Sure. Privately owned. We've got to hear. We, we're pretty intelligent people now with a lot of information. Give it to us. Well, this is a question that I, I mean, you know, I think the other thing that is being raised here is the relationship between, you know, the, the cycling through of people from the highest echelons of, of law enforcement uh, through some of these very influential corporations, uh, corporations that uh, have a lot of control over what speech is allowed and isn't allowed. So that's sort of just in the figure of this general counsel, James Baker, uh, this issue is raised. But yeah, what's strange is, yeah, it would seem that normally the CEO, if he wants to release some information, passes it through the general counsel. Exactly. The fact that Elon Musk is saying he didn't know this. Right. Uh, then you think, okay, well, I don't know. Big I genuinely, disconnect. I don't know. Then, you know, if if the idea is that everyone assumes this is going to be damaging to Twitter, and the general counsel has jumped in to intercede, you know, is that is that what his job is? Right? Is it is it his job to protect to serve the CEO? Right? Is it his job to serve shareholders? But right. since Musk has bought the company, the or, is there anyone but Elon Musk who's you know? Right? Is it his job to if he thinks what Musk is doing might put other staff in at, at risk and of you know, I, uh, legal prosecution, and that's sure. the justification? So it's like why why has he done this? And, and apparently I, without Elon Musk's before you answer, Arne, I want to I want to interrupt to add something to what Michelle is saying. I wonder if Jim Baker just thought, well, it's so normal for a general counsel to vet information before it goes to a journalist that perhaps it didn't even occur to him that he should be clearing this with Musk or. Or uh, this is maybe going to make this is going to make us look bad. Yeah. And I want to continue to come as a respected former mm-hmm. uh, FBI general counsel. Yeah, I want to continue go. to go on CNN and be a paid analyst and all this other stuff. And we can't look too bad here. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to simplify and just say, you know, having worked for a lot of corporations, having an MBA, big deal is if my general counsel released any information that could have been controversial without me knowing about it, chances are you're going to let them go. Yeah. And it's just that simple. The, fa- the, the question is, how in the hell could he have had this kind of information, not discussed it? And didn't Trump, didn't um, Musk kind of retweet this stuff and make it look like, look what happened while I wasn't on watch. And now that I'm on watch, we're going to be more transparent. That's how I took the news when it first came out. So he acted like he was involved. Now you're saying general counsel kept it from him and uh, no seasoned counsel would do that. It's yeah. just, he screwed up. Arn, um, I was one of about a dozen people last night who received an email from the great whistleblower, Daniel Ellsberg. You're a close friend of Dan's. Dan said that he had received a copy of all of the documents that were eventually released to WikiLeaks by Chelsea Manning. And Dan was urging us to report him to the Justice Department so that he could be charged with espionage. Um, In my view, this is a very brave and very important thing to do. Dan, for many years, has wanted to litigate the Espionage Act with an eye toward having it overturned in the Supreme Court. Um, is there anything to this or are we going to have to wait for either Congress to act or for yet another whistleblower to be convicted of espionage and then to challenge the conviction at the various uh, levels of federal court? 
Yeah, it's not going to move the needle because I had the honor to spend 10 days with Dan at his home working on his last book. Mm -hmm. And he's been arrested some, I believe, 86 times. Um, Dan is clearly one of the great intellectuals of our time, and he's knowing how he's doing these types of um, maneuvers, positions to bring awareness to what's happening. I think I, I, he's a hero in my eyes. John, you're a hero in my eyes. Oh, thank the things you. that you have done, the risks that you've taken. Um, I, but I would say the media is not going to do their due diligence, the mainstream yes. media, yes. and ex- use this and expose this because they would have done this with Chelsea Manning. Uh, Edward Snowden gets his passport and all the lefties think that he was, uh, this was set up all along. They have amnesia. They don't do their homework. So uh, I hope this could uh, become a three-day story, but I don't predict it will. And he, Uh, I'm pretty sure, and when I, he did this on another occasion, if it wasn't the same thing and it didn't catch wind um, a few years ago. So yeah, he, he did. He tried this. And when Jeffrey Sterling was in prison, I'm going to say this was uh, five years ago, Dan and I had many conversations about trying to raise money to allow a new set of attorneys to appeal Jeffrey Sterling's Espionage Act conviction at the at the Supreme Court level. He had gone to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals and had lost on bank there. Uh, but Jeffrey just wanted to, you know, get out and go home and get on with his life. So it never happened. I want to ask you also, uh, finally, Arn, about the Biden administration successfully petitioning the courts to dismiss a lawsuit against Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for targeting, murdering and dismembering Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. This is a 180 degree reversal from the administration's earlier position that MBS should be held to account for his actions. So why do this? Is this an attempt at rapprochement with the with the Saudis? Or is this sort of a bigger philosophical issue where Biden believes that no heads of state or heads of government should be liable uh, in foreign courts? Well, <clears throat> I just think it's Joe Biden faking left and running right. I think it's the... Uh, uh, what we see when we watch who we're selling weapons to. I think we, uh, this may be oversimplifying it, but we're a weapons-based economy. Saudi is one of our biggest um, purchasers. It's a strategic stronghold for us. Uh, we don't, um, MBS is very good at playing both sides against the middle, working with China and Russia. I think it's sad I think it's a uh, politics as usual for what uh, the inverse totalitarian state. Uh, so uh, I, 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 there were so many opportunities for Biden to cut ties with MBS and Saudi over what they're doing with oil prices, et cetera. Uh, this is just gives us another example of what reality is. Arn Manconi, thank you so much for joining us. Arn is a wow he's a whole bunch of different things arts a journalist an activist a commentator on uh, political and current events he was the 2016 green party nominee for the united states senate in the state of colorado he's a former vail county commissioner which is a whole fun story in and of itself and you can find his work at consortiumnews.com
uh, we're going to take a short break, which I think is like our first break in a long time. Uh, you're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Uh, we'll take that break and come right back. So stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The Supreme Court is hearing arguments as we speak right now in a case called Moore versus Harper. One side believes that the Constitution vests exclusively in the states the authority to hold federal elections, that is, elections for President, Senate, and House of Representatives, without any oversight from state courts. The other side says that, sure, federal elections are federal, but burdening the federal courts with every issue pertaining to every federal election would be so onerous that the federal courts would grind to a halt. This case began as a redistricting case from North Carolina and has morphed into a state's rights case. It would change not only the way congressional districts are drawn, it would take the issue of gerrymandering out of the state courts. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky this morning was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. That used to be an important honor when Time was an actual magazine that you could buy at a newsstand. Does that still matter? And if so, how? We're going to speak with Stephen Donziger about that. Stephen is a lawyer, writer, former journalist, and environmental advocate currently known for leading an unrelenting 24-plus years and counting legal battle against Chevron Corporation related to its contamination of the Ecuadorian rainforest. God bless him. Stephen, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me, John. Good to have you, as always. Say, can you begin by explaining to us what the basic tenets of Moore v. Harper are? We know that the North Carolina legislature tried repeatedly to gerrymander the state's congressional districts. Those boundaries were struck down. And then what? So... You know, first, I just want to say, contextually, the Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court right now is doing some really radical extremist things that it is, to some degree, hiding in sort of the technical esoterica of the law. And I think this is a really good example of that, this Moore v. Harper case, which basically is an attempt um, to give state legislatures 100% absolute total control without any court oversight of how elections are administered. Not just elections, but everything around elections, including how districts for congresspersons are designed and that kind of thing. And what this case really um, has the potential of doing is vesting in state legislatures, 30 of which, 30 of the 50 states, are under the control of Republicans, the total power to determine, um, you know, many things, including who gets to be president of the United States. Because if you think back to what happened in the 2020 election when Donald Trump tried to steal the election, his main strategy was to get states to send fake slates of electors um, to the Electoral College that did not reflect the popular vote of that particular state. In other words, the state might have voted for Biden, and the legislature 
That is, the popular vote might have gone for Biden, but the legislatures and the Republican-controlled legislature might have sent electors to Trump. And the Supreme Court taking up this case has the potential to give states that kind of authority where someone like Donald Trump or some other person in the future who wanted to do the same thing could actually steal a national election like openly by sending fake, fake slates of electors. Right be endorsed by the state legislature. So I know all that's technical. It's probably a little complicated, but. But it's important. And that's what this comes down to. This is, like I say, this started off as a gerrymandering case and it's morphed into, you know, the the Donald Trump uh, false electors uh, Justice Department investigation kind of case. And that's why it's so important. Our producer, Ben, was down there at the Supreme Court today and he said there were hundreds of people outside. That's how important this thing is. Stephen, it seems that the most basic issue in this case is whether or not the state courts have jurisdiction over federal elections. We have Bruce Fine on the show uh, with some frequency, and he's always maintained that there is no such thing as national elections. We have 51 separate state elections that sort of constitute a national election. Uh, Is that what this is about at the end of the day? Well, look, I, I think I have a lot of issues with how politics is organizing the United States. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, to some degree, that is what it's about. I don't think we should have 50 different elections. Totally agree. National leaders. I mean, we should have one system um, that works nationally and that is run by reputable, neutral people and administered properly. Um, you know, we shouldn't have an electoral system that's subject to political whim and to you know, corporate money that controls, you know, how elections are run in a way that suppresses the vote, which you see all over the place, including in Georgia, you know, in this recent runoff election. So, you know, look, you know, this this is, in, in, I think, an example of the corporate powers in the United States trying to control our democracy or, or really abuse our democracy to control our society. And one way they think they can do it is by controlling state legislatures. And if they can get the Supreme Court to say, well, these you know, state legislative bodies that are under corporate domination can actually determine who gets to be president, then we're in serious trouble. And I actually think that's what the Morby Harper case, if the court rules in the way that I think it's going to rule, um, that's the kind of danger I think it would create for our democracy and for our country. Stephen, there seems to be an ideological divide on this issue at the Supreme Court. Four of the most conservative justices have asked questions that have led observers to think that they want to come down on the side of um, of the the right wing position that uh, that legislature should have unfettered authority to decide um, what congressional districts look like. You say in an opinion piece in The Guardian, and and forgive me, this is a long quote, but I thought that it was important. You say the heart of the Moore case is a is a formerly fringe legal notion called the independent state legislature theory. This this theory posits that an obscure provision in the U.S. Constitution allowing state legislatures to set time, place and manner rules for federal elections should not be subject to judicial oversight. In other words, State legislatures should have the absolute power to determine how federal elections are run without court interference. Think about this theory in the context of the last U.S. election. 
After Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump resoundingly in both the popular vote and the Electoral College, Trump tried to organize a massive intimidation campaign to steal the election, which played out in the storming of the Capitol building on January 6th. But behind the scenes, the legal core of this attempt was to convince the many Republican-controlled state legislatures, which constituted 30 out of the 50 states, to send slates of fake Trump electors from states like Arizona, Georgia, and Michigan, where Trump actually lost the popular vote, unquote. If the conservatives lose on this, will it put to rest, do you think, any future attempt to seat fake electors in closely contested presidential races? Well, I wouldn't say that, but I do mm. think it would go a long way toward, you know, sort of preventing that from happening. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense because there would just be too many, too much sort of structure in place to stop it from happening. Um, you know, this this whole Morby Harper case is designed to get rid of a major guardrail to protect the popular will. Right. By the way, the popular will in quotes, because, you know, the popular will already is greatly diminished by voter suppression tactics and all sorts of structural inequities in our electoral system. But even given that, like, you know, they still believe they need this last sort of magic bullet, you know, what I would call a corrupt magic bullet to control who can actually become president, even when that person loses the popular vote. And this would just be one more way that could happen. And it's a very dangerous case, in my opinion, and I'm shocked, frankly, that the Supreme Court is even taking it up. And I want to tell your listeners, you know, as a lawyer, like the court has a lot of discretion. It only takes one out of every 100 cases. It only takes 70 cases a year. Um, it really limits its yeah. workload. So the idea to take its limited sort of, you know, capital and devote it to this kind of crazy case, I mean, only suggests that they're using it as they have with the abortion case and so many other cases. Oh, good point. You know, to they want to they're, they're grabbing that they're out there grabbing cases that are really um, based on these fringe right wing legal theories so they can quickly try to change how our society is structured through the through the unelected courts and really through six justices, six ultra conservative justices. And this is an example of that. We saw it, by the way, two days ago in the argument over the um, gay rights case on the issue being whether a web designer to officer services to the public can be um, forced to make a cake for a gay couple. And, you know, that case, is about a conflict that doesn't even exist. The, the woman was never asked to make a website for a gay couple. Just on the speculative idea that it could happen, the Supreme Court is taking up, all, using all its capital, because they want to shift the law radically and quickly, and they're, they're grabbing cases out of yeah. there to do it. And this Morby Harper case is an example. They never should have taken this case. It's not an important case. The idea that this could even happen is preposterous, but they're taking it. And it's very, we're living a very fraught moment right now as lawyers, um, understanding how this, our highest court is operating. I wanted to ask you one last question about uh, this uh, naming of Volodymyr Zelensky as Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Does this matter in any material way? Will it have any effect on the important issues at hand, like congressional support for arming Ukraine or popular support in the United States for funding Ukraine? 
I mean, I don't think Time Magazine has near the influence it used to. No, nor do I. Um, you know, um, does it matter? I mean, it matters slightly, not nearly as much as it did, you know, when pre- prior to the Internet, like it was a very big thing to what Time Magazine said sure was. about something. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the larger issue about Ukraine um, and about, you know, what's going to happen there with the war is really interesting, complex, and needs to be fully debated. You know, you, you get the feeling, and I think the time covers an example of this, like there's not a whole lot of a criticism of Zelensky or Biden's strategy vis-a-vis Ukraine in the mainstream media, and I think it needs to be examined. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I think there needs to be some skepticism. I mean, we've spent so much money, and, um, you know, there's a lack of controls in place, and I think a lack of understanding of what some of the things going on over there, and I think that needs to be scrutinized just like everything else, where there's a major expenditure of public money. Uh, Michelle, I had a question that she wanted to uh, pose with you if you've got an extra minute. Yeah, Stephen, I just wanted to ask you about uh, what is going on with your case. I know you said yesterday that you were asking U.S. Attorney General to urge the Supreme Court to uh, respond to uh, your actions to ask them to reverse your private Chevron prosecution. And if I remember, we talked about this last time, I think, and uh the Supreme Court had agreed to like they they had agreed to look at it. Can you tell us, has there been a next step? Yeah. So the fundamental issue on my personal case right now before the Supreme Court is whether um, the my private prosecution by a Chevron law firm is legal or not. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's legal. I think it's an outrage and I think it's a violation of the rule of law. But that is the issue now before the court. And, you know, I filed my brief asking the court to reverse my private prosecution by Chevron that resulted in a misdemeanor contempt conviction. And the Department of Justice of the United States ignored my brief, tried to sort of wish the case away, and the Supreme Court ordered them to respond to my brief. Mm-hmm. And I'm urging the DOJ and Attorney General Garland do not oppose my brief. I mean, I think we can all agree that private corporate prosecution should not be allowed in the United States. And there's no reason to oppose what happened to me if, if I'm the DOJ. I mean, they didn't do this. They let it happen. They should not have let it happen, but they let it happen via a private Chevron law firm. So I'm continuing to push on this issue. The DOJ has to respond to my brief by the 16th, which is next week. And it'll be very interesting to see what they do. And I'm hoping they will join us and agree with us in seeking reversal of my conviction. Or I guess what would happen, and, you know, if if this goes further, is that the Department of Justice will have to defend what happened to you. That's exactly right. Right. They can either defend the impossible um, or they can agree with me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, I don't know what they'll do. They're going to be under a lot of pressure from the oil industry and others to you know, try to continue this game of hurting Stephen Donziger. Um, On the other hand, anyone who looked at the law knows that what happened to me was wrong, was illegal. I have a lot of support, by the way, ironically, among Federalist Society right-wing lawyers on one issue. They don't necessarily support my environmental justice work, but they're like, wow, I can't believe um, you know, you were prosecuted by a private law firm and people are really offended by that regardless of their politics. I never heard of that until I met you. I, I just didn't even know it was possible. 
I, I, I have never heard of it until I met myself. <laughs> I don't mean to be quick, but like, I've never heard of this. I didn't know this could happen. No, no, it's just crazy. And actually, actually it's never happened before because I believe it's illegal. Right. Which makes perfect sense. Apple did in appointing a private lawyer prosecute me is illegal. I mean, it, you know, the reason you've never heard of this is because no one tried to do it. It's so obviously wrong, you know. Absolutely. Stephen Donziger, thank you so much for joining us. Stephen is a lawyer, writer, former journalist, and environmental advocate currently known for leading an unrelenting more than 24-year-long legal battle against Chevron Corporation related to its contamination of the Ecuadorian rainforest. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Hispanic. We don't have time for another. There's been so much news yep. today. We just don't have time uh, to... Uh, to take another break. So we're going to go right into some closing headlines. And there was something that I wanted to raise. Uh, This is breaking news from the New York Times just came out in the last, well, it says six minutes ago. You know, we saw this morning that Donald Trump had hired a team of investigators to look at his properties and see if they could find anything. Which is so, so yeah, they're going to look at all his properties to see if there's accidentally classified material Which I will tell you is a violation of the Espionage Act. Oh, is it? Because they are not cleared. If they they do find classified documents, they're not cleared to look at them or touch them or move them. What if it's fallen out of the envelope and says, here are all our assassination plans? Yes. Uh Well, guess what? Did they find some, They John? found classified documents in a Florida storage unit leased by Donald Trump. Like, could this guy get in any more trouble than he's already in? But he's, these are people hired, I don't understand, yeah, it, what, what is happening here? I don't know. It's I, just crazy. I predict what Donald Trump is going to say is, uh, I don't know, that somehow this wasn't his fault. That he didn't know these documents were there and he's now hired people to go hunt them down because they were they were placed there without his right. knowledge. Right. 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 Yeah. Or yeah. also because he doesn't want to that. give uh, uh, government authorities permission to snoop around in all his storage spaces. So he's trying to get this stuff out ahead of time. Also, mm-hmm. I'm just guessing mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Just crazy. Um, we have talked about the case of Sharina Buakla this week already. I think it was another organization. It was yes. um, Mina. Uh, yes. Right. Another organization that was uh, they had filed a brief before the ICC. Al Jazeera, the network that she worked for, is now taking her killing to the International um, Criminal Court. I was very, very happy to see that. Yeah. They've submitted a formal request that the ICC investigate and prosecute those responsible for killing their journalist, Sharina Buakla. I mean, uh, ICC, not notably uh, quick off the block when it no. comes to investigating Israel. No, it, Although they have in the last couple of years have shifted, shifted longstanding patterns and they are investigating um, allegations of war crimes by by Israel and the mm-hmm. occupied Palestinian mm-hmm. territories. Um but yeah, we will see. But good for Al Jazeera, at least for standing up for its, uh, you know, standing up for their colleague. And I'll add, you know, I've done some work uh, over the years with Al Jazeera, um, mostly on politics and, and Washington and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They are deadly serious about pursuing this. Mm-hmm. Shireen Abu Akla was by far the most popular, universally beloved journalist at Al Jazeera. And the fact that she was just murdered in cold blood and nobody apparently is going to have to pay any price for that. It's too much for them to take. Yeah. Yeah. So good on them. 
some other interesting news here. I'm seeing, I don't know why this isn't getting more attention. And maybe that's because it's a little bit wonky, but it looks like Illinois has just eliminated cash bail. Yeah, how do you like that? J.B. Pritzker I'm surprised by that. Uh, yeah, and so it was, they, they had passed this bill, the Safety Act, the Safety, Accountability, Fairness, and Equity Today Act, that was signed into law in 2021. Uh, but they have now made some clarifications to the bill to, in the words of Pritzker, bring an end to a system where wealthy violent offenders can buy their way out of jail while less fortunate nonviolent offenders wait in jail for trial. So, you know... It's covering the entire state of Illinois. It's uh, pretty impressive. You know, this is this is what's gotten uh, district attorneys in trouble in places like New York and Philadelphia and San Francisco. But it, the 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 theory is a good one, and uh, if Illinois can make it work, maybe it'll be a model for the rest of the country. Yeah, I have a feeling that what has actually happened is slightly more complicated yeah. than I can absorb and transmit right now. But I, I was surprised that it wasn't getting a little bit more attention there if that's actually what's happened and why people aren't you know people who want to eliminate cash bail aren't you know looking to that as a pro uh you know a model yeah for doing so yeah yeah i agree i also this is something that caught my eye this morning and i then uh i'll just tell you i i realized it wasn't really much of anything so the u.s and the uk have signed a new energy pact um, uh, Rishi Sunak quite excited about it, and uh, it has to do mostly with uh, LNG transfers. Uh, it's the new U- UK US Energy Security and Affordability Partnership, and they announced yesterday uh, that under this agreement, US gas companies will be urged to up their exports to Europe uh, via the UK, and uh, they will I'll have to say pretty please strive to export at least. 9 to 10 billion cubic meters of liquefied natural gas over the next year via UK terminals. That caught my eye just because I always think this language is so funny. They're straw. We'll try. We promise to try. Okay. You know, <sighs> uh, but I will say uh, these levels are about what our current, like 2022 LNG export to the yes. UK has been. So, you know, it, no it's not changes. like they've set. Yeah, it's not like they've set huge high in the sky expectations. They are also worth noting uh, double what our exports were last year, uh, right. which is maybe one of the reasons why Life the is U.S. Good. is being accused of profiteering from the war in Ukraine. So I just I, I don't understand the Biden administration. Maybe it's not unique to them, but there's just there's a lot of urging and a lot of requests and not necessarily a lot of concrete. That's uh, right. You know, promises. Yeah, that is right. I think we're going to have to skip my favorite uh, FTX piece of news for the day. Uh, <sighs> yeah, it involves a, a being <laughs> having a one point four billion negative on your accounts. We can get into that more tomorrow. Uh, thanks to everybody who joined us. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Woody, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>